of course, if you're doing a upstream LNG project, it's very hard to finance that project unless you have long-term contracts. Or what we do see that is becoming more normal in the market, which is basically how oil fields are being developed, offshore oil fields. There you have the equity model. So let's say you have a project in America, 10 million tons. Let's say you have five super majors going into that project and what they they put in the money required to build the project and then they need to take 20% of the offtake and then they will take that 20% offtake into the portfolio and market that product so so that's how it works in oil exploration people are doing you know big big players are taking an equity stake in LNG it hasn't been like that in LNG it's been somebody developed the project and in order to finance it and FID the project they need to underpin that project with let's say 80% uh, long term offtake contracts in order to get financing and Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building Smarter Markets be the antidote? Oystein, thank you very much for joining us today on Smarter Markets. How are you? Thanks, Susan. Good to be here, and I'm looking forward to this uh, special program you have now. Okay, great. And you're you're coming all the way from uh, you're with us from uh, Oslo, Norway, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So it's afternoon here in Oslo, and uh, but you know the LNG market never sleeps. That's absolutely true, right? And it it certainly hasn't slept in the last fifteen or twenty years. Well, anyway, well, well, thank you again for joining us. And when we were chatting be- before the podcast, I mentioned that you're the only uh, LNG shipping person that we have on the podcast. So since you're coming from the shipping industry, you have a, a really unique perspective, I think, to bring. I want to just first chat with you a bit to find out a bit about your background and how is it that you ended up running Flex LNG? Oh, it's a long and winding road. Uh, <laughs> I started uh, more in the shipping industry 15 years ago when I uh, joined a, a group called Umo. Uh, Umo was at that time the one of the biggest shipping companies in Norway called Knutsen. It's been a shipping company here in Norway for like, I believe, around 100 years. But they uh, came in some new owners in the 80s and... I think probably today it's uh, by insurance value probably at least one of the top three shipping companies. So they have specialized niche of, of shuttle tankers, which are oil tankers loading cargoes from offshore oil fields, and then also LNG, which are two very capital-intensive uh, shipping industry. A shuttle tanker typically costs you 100 to 150 million dollars, while LNG tankers these days are at above 200 million dollars. So it's a niche where you have uh, high requirements for performance. Both of the shipping types are what you would call fl- floating pipelines. So instead of having pipelines, you are utilizing specialized tankers to move either than the crude oil or, or uh, LNG to, to markets. And, you know, I, I've been around in the in the business. I've worked in shipping, as I mentioned, 15 years, but I've also had some stints in renewables, in investment banking. And, and then I joined uh, Flex uh, about four years ago. 
So uh, we have had one hell of a ride. When I joined, we had zero ships on the water. Today, we have turned in new ships on the water. We listed a company in New York in addition to, to Oslo as well. And, you know, it's been a volatile ride the last uh, four years, um, which has been interesting. Okay, well, so you you've certainly have been in the business for a while and have seen the development of the LNG industry. So can you just share some insight with us? How has the industry changed since you've started in, until now, which is about, what, 15 years? If you look at the LNG industry, it's been, from a shipping point of view, I would say it's almost changed uh, dramatically because LNG shipping industry 15 years ago was probably the boorest shipping segment around. When you did contracts, you typically did three contracts. It was a shipbuilding contract, a time charter, usually lasting 20 years, and then uh, financing, of course, is expensive ships, but, you know, good counterparties, and, and you mostly used traditional bank financing to finance the ships, and you didn't really need to rely on the capital markets, because with a 20-year time charter to, to one of the big utilities, you could get uh, a lot of bank financing. So, and then also, in relation to the ships themselves, they were pretty... You know, the spec on these ships were not very impressive. More, 15 years ago, all the ships that were, were on the water had steam turbine engines, which are not very efficient. That's why, you know, you, you, trains are not using steam engines these days. And most of the shipping segments left steam engines in the 1970s uh, after the oil price became expensive and people switched to more modern shipping engines. So, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the setup of the industry have changed the shipping types have changed and also the uh, how, how the ships are trading so you, back in you know 15 years ago it was more a liner business you went from a to b so if let's say a spanish utility had a contract uh, for buying cargoes from trinidad tobago the ship basically went a to b a to b all the time with the same uh, utility company for and you know we're planning to do so for 20 years today it's become LNG become more a global commodity. You, you have seen the super major becoming very dominant in LNG, and they are much more dominant than they are in oil, uh, where there are it's much more fragmented. Uh, LNG is pretty consolidated when it comes to off-takers. You have, of course, the Qatari, you have the super majors, you have the traders, and you still have, of course, utilities. But it's more dominated by big players than, than the oil trade so so a lot have changed and and of course with shorter contracts we've also seen lng shipping companies utilizing public equity markets to finance the business because as i mentioned it's it's fairly expensive to build these ships so i think that all started 2005 with tk lng's ipo in in the us and then there's been a plenty of those uh, uh or, or principal shareholder here in 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 flex uh, uh, John Fredriksen, who is probably the most successful shipping investor around, he's founded Golar in 2000, which is also a company he listed both in Oslo and, and, and US before uh, selling out of that company in 2014. So, so you have a, 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 what I would kind of say that it's transformed from being a very niche segment, a rather boring segment, to now being a more a, a global commodity trade. What would you say LNG is a global commodity or is it still still commoditizing at the moment? 
Uh, no, no, it's it's not a global commodity, uh, but it's commoditizing. Yeah. It's commoditizing, right? Right. I mean, this is something that. Yeah. No. 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 It's 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 gradually commoditizing. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. So I think that it's interesting how, of course, shipping has mirrored the LNG industry, right? So you you shipping essentially mirrors how LNG is traded. So it was historically a point A to B trade with utilities, a pretty straightforward trade. It's become, I, I suppose, a bit certainly more dynamic and also maybe more complicated because you have a lot of new players coming into the market and it requires new financing, new ways to think of things. So some of the new players coming in are the commodity firms. Are you seeing them? Do you think the commodity brokers, are they ordering new ships to take the LNG, you know, to take their offtake? Or are they chartering ships? Or how are the commodity firms going to deal with with the shipping aspect of, of LNG? Hmm. You know, we had our investor day in, in February 2020, and we had three big teams. Team number one was the commoditization of LNG. So as you mentioned, it's not a global commodity, but we are moving towards being a global commodity. The two other teams were decarbonization of, of LNG, and then the third was getting rid of the methane emissions because they have to come down. So, But first, your, your first question about the traders. So if you think about the oil trade, it was a bit similar to the LNG in the 1970s before Mark Rich kind of broke the cartel of the Seven Sisters. And of course, he founded the Mark Rich company, which later became uh, Glencore. And, and it's a bit similar in, in the LNG space where you have also seen the traders coming in and, and taking a, grabbing a bigger market share and these are predominantly not only Glencore but Trafigura, Vitol, Gunvor. So we do see that they are you know, buying up uh, more volumes, are pretty active in the spot market but in terms of owning ships they, they tend to favor a asset light business model. They don't want you know having a lot of LNG ships are pretty expensive so they are more chartering ships on shorter term contracts but also longer term contracts especially if they have let's say a 10 year offtake agreement somewhere for LNG then they might want to match the offtake of the LNG with also a shipping contract for that duration. I guess it'll be interesting to see because, of course, the commodity firms are continuing to to get offtake, especially from the United States. And I think that's one open issue is um, if it's FOB, then they have to supply the ship and how are they going to supply the ship? And it's it, it wasn't clear to me how that was going to work. So it'll be just interesting to, to see. So let me ask you a few questions about Flex. So the shipping industry has grown. Flex has grown. You said you went from three ships to now, I think you said 13, 13 new ships. We have 13 ships on the water today, yes. Flex has great slides, by the way. For anyone listening, you can go to the Flex website and um, they have great presentations online. And the reason I point that out is there are not very many, what I would call a pure play LNG company. Right. Flex, I think, is one. Chenier is one where pretty much the the business is related to LNG. And so all you're going to find is LNG versus if you go on Chevron's website, you know, you have to dig around <laughs> for LNG. And so your presentations are, are great. And one of your slides showed that I think it said uh, sold out, come back later. <laughs> right. So it sounds like you have no, uh, your everything is on charter and there's, there's nothing. If I needed an LNG ship from Flex, it sounds like I couldn't get it. <laughs> is that correct? 
You can you can get one in 2022, but you have to have some patience. So uh, yeah, no, it's it's been uh, this year has been quite uh, different than most analysts expected. If you looked at 2021, you would see that there would be maybe like 55 ships and. Prior to COVID, uh, of course, the volume growth for 2021 was supposed to be very small. Uh, so on paper, it looked like a weak shipping year. You know, last year you had a, a flurry of US cargo cancellation, about 180 of those. And this year it's it's basically zero. There's been uh, some cancellation due to the big freeze in, in Texas. But despite, uh, except for that, there's no cancellation. So volume growth from US will be uh, more than 20 million tons this year. So so volume growth in, in 2021 has actually been very strong. And it's not only volumes in, in metric tons. It's also about where where do you see the demand growth. And demand growth has been, been Asia. China is growing remarkably strong. So that means that the ships and the cargoes, they need to sail longer. And that's why... Uh, freight market's been much better than I think most people thought uh, in 2021. And that's why we've been sold out because we fixed a lot of ships recently on longer term contracts. We, When we started the year, we had uh, 10 ships on the water, three new buildings for delivery this year and only one long term contract. Uh, now recently we have done uh, several of them, uh, five to Chenier and, and then we... Uh, done uh, two to what I would call uh, portfolio players and traders, and we just recently announced another two contracts. So we kind of de-risked the portfolio of freight contract portfolio by having longer-term contracts in order to kind of uh, uh, lock in some good uh, returns for the next couple of years. But, you know, we have ship possibly available next year, so... Oystein, you mentioned that you had a, a number of recent long-term contracts. I think you said five with Chenier. Can you define long-term? Is that more than 10 years or 10 to 20? Are we still seeing 20-year contracts? It's a good question. Uh, long-term you know, in the past was like 20, even 25 years you could see contracts. Uh, these days, the long-term contract, uh, you know, the regular contracts long-term for a new building is typically five to ten years you still do see some inquiries longer than that that primarily the qatari tenders there's also been some tenders with petronas but so there are still some asian players and qatari going longer than 10 years but i would say five to ten is the normal today for new buildings and then for ships on the water you will probably more see three to seven years i would say so similar to just the lng trade the the contract terms of the new long term is now shorter than the old long term, essentially. The, the terms have, have gotten a little bit shorter. So, And what's the status of the LNG industry? What's the status of new builds? Is, are, are more ships on the way? Are more ships needed? Yeah, there are definitely more ships on, on the way. And this year, you will see a, a lot of new building orders. Of course, the Qatari, they're just getting started. So the Qataris will increase their capacity. They have been the biggest exporter for a very long time and they will expand their capacity from 77 million ton to 126 million tons. So so they will need a lot of ships and, and we do expect Qatari eventually to order around 100 ships both for their volumes in Qatari, but also for Golden Pass in, in the US. And then, as I mentioned, there's been a lot of technological change. So 
from 2023, there will be some new IMO requirements, which we call EEXI. It's energy efficiency for existing ships and also a carbon indicator. So this means that there's an annual test where you have A to E and ships have to go through this in order to get a kind of like a carbon rating. So the ambition there from IMO, uh, which they sometimes get uh, criticism for, is to reduce the carbon intensity for LNG shipping by 40% by 2030 uh, and then 70% by 2050. And Keep in mind that shipping is probably one of the hardest industries to abate emissions because you have heavy ships going through uh, water with the resistance from the water and also from wind and currents. So the EXSI coming into force from 2023 will mean that a lot of older ships will have a hard time complying with the new requirements, especially those ships still running a, a steam turbine engine. So just to, for a comparison, so the new ships we have on the water today they have a fuel consumption about 60% less than the steam ships when adjusting for the fact that our ships are about 30% bigger than the steam ships. So we are already in position to surpass the requirement of the IMO 2030, you know, the 40% reduction in carbon intensity. But there's a lot of ships that will not be able to comply with the new requirements. And that's why we will see a lot of ships having to exit the industry, especially about 200 steam ships. So that means that there will be a need for, for new ships. And also, you have to keep in mind that the LNG industry is growing fairly rapidly. It's been In the past, it's been growing like 7-8% per year. We do think that this growth will come down to 3 to 4% the next 20 years. But still, that means you need more ships to replace those ships uh, retiring, to replace those ships not meeting uh, emission standards. And then also, you have to have new ships for the new growth. Okay. So it's interesting. I mean, the LNG shipping industry is also decarbonizing and being pushed to decarbonize by the IMO and and other places, similar to the LNG industry itself is also being pushed to decarbonize. But a, a little bit differently, it's interesting that you mentioned how many ships might need to be retired because they simply cannot be retrofitted or comply with new IMO regulations. So that's a pretty significant number, which I guess is good for new builds. So I know at one time, you know, there was a lot of discussion about uh, using LNG as a fuel to meet the IMO guidelines. Is that still an issue in the LNG shipping industry? Is anyone using LNG as a fuel to meet the guidelines? Of course, all LNG ships, except for some odd ships, which is called the QMAX and QFlex, there are 45 of those ships, but the rest, which is like 600 ships, they are basically consuming part of the cargo as fuel because... Uh, what is LNG, uh, LNG ship? It's re- really a, a big thermos with a propeller. So you take this cold LNG, which is minus 161 Celsius or 260 Fahrenheit. You put it on this thermos, but you're not able to keep it perfectly cold. So you have some heating up. So this creates some gas vapor and you use this gas vapor uh, as fuel on the ship. So all our ships are burning LNG. And most others, you know, there's just a few ships that don't do this. But in terms of LNG as a fuel, we're definitely seeing a a big trend here because you do have IMO requirements, meaning that, you know, emissions from shipping need to come down. And, And one way of complying, 
not only with kind of decarbonization rules, but also IMO 2020. So IMO 2020 is a reduction of sulfur from 2020. And of course, LNG is sulfur-free. So by burning LNG, you are also complying with the IMO 2020 without any need for a scrubber. But then also by using LNG instead of bunkers oil or marine diesel, you're also cutting the emissions by 20-25% depending on who you're asking. So it's also a way of reducing carbon emissions. And if you do see the new container ships being ordered these days, it's predominantly uh, fueled with LNG. Uh, the cruise industry has also made the, sw- uh, sw- the swap from from bunkers oil to, to LNG. So so we do see that LNG is growing as a, a marine fuel and this is becoming a bigger market as well. Of course, it's not perfect in the sense that you are not able to reduce the CO2 emissions by by 100%, but you are able to reduce them by 20-25%. And then down the road, of course, we need to find better ways to get these emissions down further, either by carbon capture systems, but also keep in mind that CO2 and, and sulfur is not the only emissions you are reducing. Some, you know, by coastal areas, of course, particular matter pollution, NOx pollution is also a big problem, creating health issues. So by swapping to LNG, you are getting rid of the particular matter or the fine dust pollution and, and you're all, almost eliminating also the, the, the NOx emissions. So that is also something to take into consideration. Are the voluntary carbon markets coming into play at all? In LNG shipping, can you offset? So in the LNG industry, you can offset. You know, there's a carbon neutral LNG is potentially going to be a big thing. It's hard to say yet. Can the shipping industry do the same thing? Can you use the voluntary carbon markets to offset emissions that you can't abate? Yeah, it's a lot of controversy around the carbon offsets. LNG is probably the shipping segment where you see the most activity, where we do see very regularly now customers are announcing that they are offsetting the emissions from uh, the LNG cargos in order to make it kind of net zero. Uh, And then it's, of course, are you then cutting the scope one, two or three emissions? So scope three is basically the combustion where you do see the most emissions, scope one and two is the production and the transportation of the, the emissions. And, and and of course, there are controversy about uh, carbon offsets. Uh, how can you make sure that you are getting rid of, of, of emissions? Some em- of these carbon offsets are more subsidy of renewables so it's like a indirect cut of emissions while others are like planting trees in uh, places where you have had uh, uh, forests being cut down and you are planting new trees in order to absorb co2 so so we do see this as a new and interesting market and and i think there is potential here for grow and and of course if you are uh, uh, transporting LNG cargo, you, there's a lot of ways these days to, to offset the carbon emissions by the voluntary market, but also the kind of the, the European emission trading system will also come in force for shipping by 2023 as well, where people who are shipping cargos into Europe will be need, required to buy uh, carbon emissions in the European trading system. And of course, those kind of emission credits are much more expensive than the voluntarily carbon offset market. Well, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's sort of front and center on everyone's mind, but 
not clear what, what the path is going to be. I mean, there, there clearly is a path to decarbonization. And uh, I think in the next years, we'll hear a lot more about it and how it's going to roll out, both on the shipping side, but the LNG side, and really for all industry. It's been great to talk about shipping, and, and I, but I know you obviously follow the market, just the general market, what's going on in the market. So I wanted to shift the discussion a bit to get your input on what is going on in the markets. And you have a, a great slide that said, you know, 10 reasons behind the energy crisis that we're currently facing. It seems to be abating a bit now, but, you know, every day it changes. So I'm wondering if you can just walk us through what, what you think the, you know, I guess the reasons are behind the energy crisis. Yeah, so I put up this uh, kind of list based on an article I read in Economist. And of course, there's a lot of these points which we have uh, discussed in our previous presentation. But I thought it was a good summary list of why do we have this cash crunch? And, you know, really, if you look back to 2020 with all the cargo cancellations, I don't don't think a lot of people expected this to happen. but, But what happened was that we had this long and cold winter. And especially you had this cold snap in in Asia in the beginning of the year where electricity prices in in Japan especially just skyrocketed. And then we had a a very long winter in uh, in Europe uh, all the way to May and and kind of the injection season for for gas uh, was delayed by about a month. Uh, So that really drove down the the inventory levels in Europe because you had a pull of cargoes to Asia because of the cold snap and then also because you were, have to run down the, the inventories in Europe. And then after this cold winter, you had a, a very hot summer, which is driving up uh, cooling demand. So you really didn't have much of shoulder months. So where you have no heating demand and no cooling demand, you went directly from heating demand to, to cooling demand. And then, of course, there's been a lot of fiscal stimuli and more monetary stimuli not least and and this have created uh, economic recovery uh, with kind of pretty robust growth in in Europe Asia uh, and US as well and it's of course also driving the demand for for natural gas we have also had this La Nina. So one of the reasons why we had a cold winter is also driven by La Nina and what La Nina also typically then results in is dwarf in South America. So we had a dwarf in South America, but also in Europe, uh, where hydro levels have come down. And and lower hydro levels means that you have to import more uh, gas. So this has especially been the case in Brazil, which has become a major importer this year, also Argentina, and and then to some extent also here in in Europe. Then uh, we have had coal-to-gas switching policies. So in Europe, the carbon emissions, which you are required to buy uh, in the European emission trading system, the price of these have gone up a lot and they've been trading above 60 euros per ton uh, recently. And, and, And of course, that is increasing the cost of coal and coal prices has been very high as well. So that is also affecting demand for natural gas. Another factor is uh, a lot of supply disruptions. Last year, it was mostly about supply disruption being more, I would say, voluntarily by people opting not to take cargos from U- uh, from US. This year, 
all the cargoes from USA is being exported. But there is a lot of terminals, export terminals, who have had disruption. We have uh, Norway's one of the biggest uh, natural gas exporters in the world, but in LNG, we're pretty small, and we have one export terminal, and that has been down now for, for more than a year. But we have also had the similar supply disruptions in Australia, Trinidad Tobago, uh, Malaysia to some extent in, in Egypt as well. So all this supply disruption are meaning that the LNG market is becoming tighter. Then especially one factor for, for Europe is less domestic gas consumption. And when I say domestic, it means in, in Europe. And this is especially the case in UK, which is on uh, uh, declining production. And also Netherlands, and uh, where you have one one gas field, which used to be one of the biggest in the world, the Groningen gas field, that field will probably be closed by next year. And the Netherlands is going from a export of gas to becoming a big importer. Um, then uh, we have had less flow from Russia. Of course, this has been a lot of controversy around this and and Russia holding back volumes uh, to Europe. But, you know, we have to keep in mind Russia also had a, a cold and long winter. So the storage levels in, in Russia has been depleted. And there's been uh, a lot of back and forth between European Union and Russia about Nord Stream 2 startup. And uh, so far, you know, the flows from Russia. Oh, I, I was going to ask you, I was going to put you on the spot and say, is Russia holding back volumes or are they just meeting what was uh, their contractual obligations? In other words, could Europe order more from Russia and Russia would, would comply? I think the problem is that, of course, Russia is uh, honoring their contractual obligations, but Russia is also right now, to some extent, a monopoly. So, of course, by holding back volumes, they are increasing the price. So, if you are a mo monopoly, you don't really want to flow the market with too much of your product. So, it makes sense if you're thinking it from an economic point of view. And then there are some kind of security implications there. And it's, it's the fact that in order to increase flow, they would probably have to flow that through Ukraine. And, and of course, their bilateral relationship with Ukraine is not very good. And if they have to flow uh, more volumes through Ukraine, they also have to pay them more tolling uh, fees. And, and they don't really want to fill the coffers in uh, Kiev. So there are some both political and economic considerations there. And, and also there is a kind of like a signal from Russia because Europe has been very eager on reducing their natural gas consumption. And then finally, when you have a crisis, they are crying to Russia to help them out uh, while at the same time trying to reduce the consumption of natural gas. So I think the people in Moscow, they probably don't feel too uh, incentivized to flow more volume to Europe, especially by, by the fact that Nord Stream 2 commissioning have been dragging out now for several years. Well, you make a very interesting point that's universal, right? It's something that I think around the world, everyone's trying to reduce fossil fuel use. And, you know, in 2020, we had the COVID crisis, which effectively crushed demand for everything. And then as demand came back on, people were short. So at the same time, you know, everyone wants to reduce fossil fuel use until it's a cold winter. And then you say, oh, well, we want to turn on our heat you know, where's the gas or where or, or a lot of countries have, I think, turned to coal. You mentioned coal is doing very well this year. What's the outlook for, you know, 2022? 
are we going to have a lo- another long cold winter and are people better prepared this winter or are we going to see another spike in prices first quarter 2022 if you look at uk which is a, like a special case and i think if you look at uk they've been very quick on on, on reducing their coal consumption 2012, I believe it 40% of the power consumption came from coal. And, and last year, it was virtually nothing. Of course, it's been bouncing back now this year because people have been desperate and they've been burning coal instead because gas has been pricey and it's been a lack of gas. But if you look at the UK, they basically switched off coal and replaced it by wind offshore wind uh, particularly, and then natural gas. So they've been become much more dependent on imports. This winter, the probability is very high that there will be a La Nina uh, this winter as well. So I think the odds is skewed toward a, a, a cold or at least a normal winter. So if you look at the market today, it's already you know kind of in panic mode. JKM, which is the spot price in Asia, it's been coming down. Uh, it hit a high of $56 here early October, but it's down to 32 but still at 32 it's immensely high a kind of a, a normal lng price on a kind of oil linked contract would today be 10 to 12 dollars but the spot price is 32 so uh, the european prices have come down after putin came to the rescue in early october so he talked on the market um, we haven't really seen it in flows but uh, at least i think a lot of people been reassured that the russian will come to the rescue if needed and that's why kind of the european gas prices have, have come down we as a shipping company don't mind usually we prefer all the cargoes going to asia because that's the longest sailing route so that means more demand for shipping but in terms of the winter market uh, from a freight perspective uh, we are in november and it seems like the, the, the winter market for freight will be be good more or less regardless because of these high prices uh, and then you know it will be another restocking market uh, this summer we the european gas inventories will be more or less depleted i think when we come out of the winter so that means a lot of restocking demand over the summer so in in some i guess in some regards it's we're seeing higher prices but it sounds like you think they they might moderate because the industry always goes through ups and downs the low prices tend to attract a lot of buyers, a lot of new buyers come on, takes a long time to bring on projects. And so we've seen these sort of ebbs and flows before where we've been oversupplied and then undersupplied and then new projects take FID and then we're oversupplied for a period of time. <laughs> so do you think this is just another one of those times and at some point, you know, in the near term, the market will find an equilibrium? I think it's part of it's also part of the LNG commoditization story because in, in the past, I guess, LNG prices were pretty stable. They were all linked to oil. So with a lag then. But today, uh, more than a third of the LNG cargoes being sold are spot market. They are linked to spot market prices. And if you look at oil and the history of oil uh, since, I would say, kind of OPEC uh, came into play in the 1970s the oil price been incredibly volatile you've gone from oversupply to undersupply and and of course all the volumes are being priced at the margin so today we are bounced back and the oil demand is 100 million barrels per day 
but it's not very far from undersupply to oversupply. If if suddenly you need one million barrels per day more for uh, the airline industry, prices will pick up. But suddenly, if there is some shortfall, prices will go down. So I do think we have to see and get used to more volatile spot prices for LNG. And that's why we also do see more interest suddenly from off-takers, especially in Asia, to actually buy now LNG on, on oil price indexes again. You know, last year, the, the, this looked terribly stupid because uh, the spot price of LNG was much lower than the oil price uh, linked price. But at least then you know a bit more what you get and, and it's also easier to hedge it. Right. And I also suppose, too, it depends on what your demand is. If it's flexible demand, the spot market works fine. But if it's base load demand, <laughs> it, it seems like that's more conducive to a long-term contract. And that was the Japanese LNG trade. If you absolutely need the gas to run your power facilities and your base load, then a long-term contract makes sense and still makes sense, I think, today in the market. For, because I get asked this a lot, right? Is the long-term market dead? Is our oil link contracts dead? And I always say, no, it really depends on the buyer and the buyer's needs. And as you said, we're now maybe seeing some buyers, especially China just came in inside. I think they were 10 to 15, 17-year contracts. So essentially a long-term contract. So it still makes sense to have long-term contracts for some buyers. But do you see the spot market continuing to grow or do you think it's going to level off? I think, of course, if you're doing a upstream LNG project, it's very hard to finance that project unless you have long-term contracts. Or what we do see that is becoming more normal in the market, which is basically how oil fields are being developed, offshore oil fields. There you have the equity model. So let's say you have a project in America, 10 million tons. Let's say you have five super majors going into that project and what they, they put in the money required to build the project and then they need to take 20% of the offtake. And then they will take that 20% offtake into the portfolio and market that product. So, so that's how it works in oil exploration. People are doing, you know, big, big players are taking an equity stake. In LNG, it hasn't been like that. In LNG, it's been somebody developed the project. And in order to finance it and FID the project, they need to underpin that project with, let's say, 80% uh, long-term offtake contracts in order to get financing. And so I, I do think... We still will have long-term off-tech agreements, but I think eventually we will also have more equity model projects rather than having these longer-term off-tech contracts. Uh, I think we'll see a lot more diversity of, of different kind of contract structures. You will still have oil price index contracts. You will have probably contracts linked to Henry Hub, like Chenier has done a lot of. You will have contracts linked to probably TTF in Europe and also JKM. So I think you have a myriad of different contracts and I wouldn't rule out that you will see some project actually with a fixed price as well, where you, let's say you are buying LNG from uh, an American project and you uh, you could pay, let's say, $9 per million BTU with some kind of cost inflator. Well, of course, uh, you know, Tellurian a number of years ago proposed that and there weren't really any takers. This was maybe five years ago because Trillerian, you know, continues to tweak its model, right, to find a market. One of the things they proposed was, a, I think it was an $8 uh, fixed price contract. And at the time, nobody thought that was so great. 
Now, of course, it looks great. <laughs> but, you know, so that would be interesting because I don't think that's happened yet. So it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if that kind of contract emerges in the coming years. It depends a bit on if you have a project, it depends a bit on, on kind of where do you get the gas from. So if you have like a U.S. project, you typically you source your gas from some kind of Henry Hub type. And then, of course, you have to cover that cost and, and some of the tolling uh, cost or the liquefaction cost. If you have, let's say, a, a big gas field, like in Qatar, they claim that their kind of FOB price would be four to five dollars. And then, of course, they could sell more on a fixed price. And this has been done in Australia in the past. If you have a, a big oil field with associated gas, then, of course, you might be happier to sell it on an oil price index. So so it really depends on, on what kind of project you have. Do you have like a project where you're sourcing gas externally? Do you have a project where you're exclusively kind of drilling and producing gas or is it a associated gas field connected to oil field and all of these kind of differences will make a difference also in how you can market your product but for sure there will be a lot of more different models and it also helps that the derivative markets for LNG being either you know the gas market in Europe or the, the LNG spot market in, in Asia is also developing so people are able to hedge uh, their positions better so if you are doing a you could potentially then kind of fix your price for five years through the derivatives market as well. So, so that also helps them kind of uh, the commodity story of LNG. Well, thank you for that. We talked a lot about LNG shipping, which was great. And um, it's interesting to me that the shipping industry is essentially in a way mirroring the underlying LNG industry, which makes sense. But then it's been great just to get your perspective of the last 15 years, how LNG has sort of headed down the path of commoditization. It's still not a commodity. It's not traded quite like oil, but it's getting further and further along the commoditization path with a lot of issues. And now layered onto that, we have the decarbonization issue, which is a, a new challenge for the industry. You know, I'll ask you, it sounds like, I, I think, I, I know what you're going to say. You know, my question is, you know, will the industry meet the challenges of decarbonization and continue to thrive? The problem has been that there's been no price on CO2 emissions. So, of course, nobody's bothered doing anything with it. Here in uh, Norway now, they are talking about increasing the CO2 tax to around 200 euros per ton, or that, I guess, translates to, let's say, $230 per ton. So once you're getting into those kind of prices, it makes economic sense to do something with it. So... Uh, they built the LNG factory 20 years ago in here in Norway with carbon capture on the upstream side. They have had the oil project for more than 20 years ca capturing the carbon. So the problem has been that there hasn't been no price uh, in Europe now with 60 euro or let's say yeah, 70 dollars per ton of emission cost. Then, you know, it, you know, smart people are starting to look at this as a business opportunity rather than a business cost. And, and, you know, we do see that there are more people starting to look into carbon capture on a, a natural gas plant, either through post-combustion uh, capture or actually during the combustion phase, like the alum feldsweit uh, cycle. So I, I do think it's possible to get the emissions done, but it has to be done through a kind of market incentives like the carbon tax and uh, I think sometimes if you're just saying that, okay, by 2050, we need to get our emissions down to zero, 
what will happen then is the fact that in relation to shipping, if you are a ship owner, then the easiest way to kind of comply with this requirement is just to stop ordering any more ships. Because, uh, you know, when you're doing a $200 million investment in a ships with a technical life of 40 years, and you know that this will not comply with a zero emissions in 2050, you're not going to ordering a ship. And what you will end up with then is a lot of older, less efficient ship in the market, which would be good for the shipping companies because less ships in the market means higher rates. But I don't think it's a very good way of running it. I think you know you need to have a predictable carbon tax, maybe which is increasing every year in kind of conjunction with the, the learning effects from some of these carbon capture projects. So I think it's feasible, but uh, you know it's it, it's an energy transition. It's not an energy switch, so we can't do it just overnight because shipping is is a very hard sector to decarbonize uh, given kind of the hydrodynamics of a ship. Well, I think that's an an excellent point and maybe one we'll close on which is it is an energy transition. <laughs> so a transition can take a very long time and the history of energy transitions we shifted from coal to natural gas but that was a 20 plus year at least in the United States 20 to 30 year transition. So energy transitions do take time and will continue to play out. And I think right now the market, I think, is looking for some policy guidance, you know, a price on carbon. A lot of people have called for a price on carbon, and we don't really have that globally. And we'll see what came out of COP26. You know, we're still digesting that. So I think that's yet to come, and we'll see what policy leaders come up with. But it sounds like the shipping industry, as well as the LNG industry and all industries, are waiting for a little some policy signals to move forward. Yeah, I definitely think because it's such huge investments. So if, if there is policy uncertainty, what's going to happen then is there's not going to be any investments and we're going to have a lot of more energy crisis, that's for sure. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abax Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week. Thank you.